Viktor Frankl said, Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's way. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson. Stay tuned for the next hour as Sue explores the human psyche, what makes us tick and how to live better, more fulfilled and more meaningful lives. Only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson. And my guest today is Sebo Vilikazi. And we were together um, in July, on the 27th of July, via Skype. And we're on Skype again today. And our topic is the seeds we plant. In July, we spoke about the courage in the face of violence and chaos. Um, uh, Sebo, welcome. It's so good to have you back on my program. I just want to introduce you for a moment. Um, Sebo is an author who, who wrote a beautiful book on poetry and prose called Who Shall Stand. He is also um, a, a director of the... I am actually... Executive Director of the Valley Trust, uh, the NGO, the Valley Trust, which is in the Valley of the Thousand Hills between Peter Maritzburg and Durban, behind Buertas Hill. He actually was at one stage involved in business, but he decided that that was not his calling. So you, before we even go into all your many, many accolades, Sebo, I think rather just let's get in touch with the humanness of you. How are you today? Good morning, Sue, and good morning to your listeners. Thank you for the introduction. I'm very well. I'm, I'm feeling good, actually. I'm feeling in high spirits these days. Thank you. How are you, Sue? I'm also, I'm good. I'm fine. The last time we spoke, we were in shock still over the violence and of the recent riots. And, you know, I suppose everything begins to change as we begin to see what difference we can make. And the, the the seeds we plant, I got this wonderful quote today from my friend Judy in Australia by Confucius, which says, if you think in terms of a year, plant a seed. If terms of 10 years, plant trees. In terms of a 100 years, teach the people. So, Sebo, you are busy planting seeds in KwaZulu-Natal and elsewhere. Tell me about the seeds that you hope to plant for the future. Well, hopefully we are are moving on to trees as well as teaching because that's the the DNA of the Valley Trust, the not-for-profit that I work for, is to equip people to do for themselves. In fact, our goal, our our philosophical goal that we know we are likely to never achieve, but that we strive for, is to work ourselves out of a job. Mm. So we will know we will we have succeeded to the extent that people need us less. But in relation to what you've just said and what you were speaking about in your introduction. La- the last time we spoke, I was feeling quite dejected, and I think it showed even in the in the interview. And it was it was it was a um, a sense that pervaded all around me, including my colleagues, as I, as I said then. But 
I found that at the end of the day, I kind of had to sit down with myself and, and, and realize that life goes on. You know, I actually even have a, have a poem in my book, Who Shall Stand, about that called Life Happens. And, you know, I, you know, I needed to point myself at that. That's what I've been talking about, that life goes on regardless, relentless. And, you know, the pace of life doesn't slow down. The only thing it does actually is pick up. So if you are in a slump, you are likely to get left behind psychologically and maybe even materially and in other in other ways. So for me, the, the way in which I was able to come out of that was, first of all, to realize that life really does go on. This is not the end of the world. The second thing that occurred to me was to look for the silver lining. So we saw, and you and I discussed, that communities were coming together and that uh, people had started to reevaluate even things like their own security or, you know, their, their view of their neighbor. I need this guy. In order for us to be protected, we need to stand together. So there, there were or there was a silver lining in spite of what looked like a really, really a bad situation. And then the last thing was to find something purposeful to make of all this. And that's where our study came in, because we realized that we could sit back and just bemoan the fact that our communities had acted in the way that they had and not do anything about it or, or be critical or remain critical about it. Or actually, we could use this as an opportunity to delve into what makes our communities tick. Why would people do this? But more importantly and, and significantly, what lessons can we learn from what, what's happened in order to ensure that we do not experience such, such destruction in the future? And that, that sense of purpose has helped galvanize not just myself, but I see it in my colleagues, and has um, lifted our spirits. So what is the study that you talk about? Um, tell me about this, a bit more about the study. Following the riots and the looting, and in particular the looting of our own uh, building, of our own business here at the Valley Trust, we realized that this came quite unexpectedly to us. We really felt that we were safe and secure. Uh, we've been uh, on these premises since 1951. And to my mind, if anybody was safe from any looting, it was us. But it was not to be. We we did experience looting, and the community suffered widespread destruction of the local economy. And so we felt that there was a need to try and understand what what brought this about, what motivated community members to uh, to shoot themselves in the foot, as it were, because within within a week soon of the looting and destruction, there was widespread um, despair within the community. The places where they got their basic groceries were nowhere to be found. Uh, you know, some some homes were in darkness because they couldn't buy electric um, electricity vouchers, and so we realized that. There's something happening here that we do, certainly don't understand as an organization, but that perhaps even community members are not uh, aware of. And let us then go into the community and 
engage with the community in regards to what, how do they see or how did they see what happened? What, what, what has the impact really been? Because for the most part, we were assuming the impact. What has the impact really been? And most importantly, what can we do to um, protect ourselves as a community now or as these communities within the Valley of a Thousand Hills from such destruction, especially self-inflicted? So that's what the study seeks to achieve. We're going to get back to that. Uh, this is Sue Jackson on High FM. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. We are now going to be listening to a, a short YouTube, and then I'm going to be back with Sebo Vilakazi, and we're talking about the seeds you plant. This, the YouTube is by Simon Senek, and its inspiration is different than motivation. A why is an origin story. It's, it's why we get out of bed in the morning, and it's why people care. It's this deep-seated purpose, cause, or belief. It's a spark inside of us. And um, it's present all the time. It's different than motivation. Inspiration is different than motivation. Motivation can be externally driven. It can be temporary. You can be motivated for fear of punishment. You know, if you're going to get punished, you can be motivated. Um, and if you're going to get rewarded, you can be motivated. But it doesn't last. That feeling goes away and you have to keep repeating it. Inspiration is this, is this little thing that burns inside of us, sometimes brighter, sometimes dimmer, but it's always there. And it's where we go to for, for, for that internal strength. Um, and it's fueled by our idealism and it's fueled by the love of our friends and our colleagues and our coworkers and our family. That's what keeps that spirit alive. Um, and I, I, I sort of, I make a point to distinguish the difference between positivity and optimism. You know, it's important for us to be optimistic now. And, and to me, positivity is, is not, positivity is like looking at the world and saying everything's good. But the world is difficult right now. You know, so, but optimism is about being in a dark tunnel and seeing the light. And you're not focused on the tunnel, you're focused on the light. Optimism is not the denial of the current state. It's the belief that if we keep moving, we will hit the light. I don't know how far away that light is. I don't know how long it's going to take us to get there. But I know 100% that if we keep moving towards it, we will hit it. And that's optimism. That it, optimism, optimism allows for, uh, darkness to exist. Optimism allows for reality to be there. Optimism allows for us to have good days and bad days. It allows, optimism allows us to have setbacks. If you say be positive, that disallows a setback. That disallows you to wake up in the morning and, and feel, uh, that you don't want to, you don't want to do the day. You know? Optimism says, so take a break today. Do, do it tomorrow. You know, optimism allows for reality. Uh, and I think that's really important that it, that I'm not sure it's important for us to be positive right now, but it is definitely important for us to be optimistic. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson, and my guest today is Sebo Villakazi, and you can SMS us on 34519, or you can telegram us on 061-895-1019. Sebo was talking about the study that they're doing with the community. The study is on violence and where it comes from, what it's about, what actually feeds it. Now, that particular YouTube that we've just heard, Sebo, um, I think speaks very much 
to what I think about you with the inspiration that you have to move forward, your internal strength that says I can see reality, but I can also look for the light at the end of the tunnel. What do you, what did you think? Agreed, Sue. I, I, I thought so too. I thought it echoed with, uh, it echoed what I uh, said a few moments ago about the fact that our way as an organization of moving forward from this um, episode that we went through was firstly to look for the silver lining, look for the good in it. But we did not just try to uh, stay there or we did not just stick with the good because there's a lot of bad around it. What we said was, guys, we can actually come up with something useful even at this time that will serve the community well, that will serve our organization well, that will serve us well as individuals. And that speaks to that question of, of, of inspiration that um, Sinek was talking about. This, it created an internal drive amongst myself and my, um, and my colleagues to want to work for the greater good because we can see what the benefits uh, of that are going to be. So I, I agree very much with them, and I love that distinction between positivity and optimism, because previously I think we've, we've spoken about hope uh, at the, the difference between having a hope, really just almost a mental hope, and a, and, and a hope that's grounded in something. That there's a big difference between the two, and that's what I see here. That optimism says, you know what, things could be dark now. But I know, I, I, I am convinced there's a light at the end of the tunnel and therefore I shall keep going. And I think that's what keeps us inspired and that's what keeps us moving forward. We accept the, 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 the rough, we accept the bad as a part of life, but we know that overall life is good. Oh, wonderful, wonderful what you've just said. And I'm thinking about the communities that you got together to, to actually discuss how to move forward. Was it a mixture of communities? Because I know what we did discuss before was that within that time, what came out that was good was that all the different communities, the different cultures, the different colors, all seemed to, well, not all, but a lot of them came together to actually help one another survive what was going on and, and try and... Uh, rescue what they could. So when you talk about talking to a community, are you only talking to that community in the Valley of the Thousand Hills of the people who are needing you most uh, for the NGO? Or are you also including the other people like from Hillcrest, from Hilton, from all around? So the study is focusing on the area of the Valley of the Thousand Hills. We feel that for it to be useful and for the results to be meaningful, we have to narrow it down geographically like that. And this is a, uh, and the thing is, it's a community of some 80,000 odd, possibly now as high as um, 100,000 people. So that it's, it's far from homogeneous. And so what we are, um, what we are doing is in the various Enclaves or Izikodi in Isizulu. We we are talking to different people within those um, within those villages and communities or sub communities within the broader the, the community of the Valley of a Thousand Hills. What's interesting is that 
when we started with the study and we spoke to some people for assistance, we realized initially we wanted to do something akin to a SNAP survey, just get quick results and put something out quickly. Maybe even we would have done it by the end of August. But as we spoke to people in academia and as we spoke even to people within the, within the organization, we realized that we had the opportunity here to produce something rich that could be of use to people outside of our community on the subject of community violence, on the subject of community resilience, and on the subject of building from ruins. So what we are doing now is we've, we are going, we are almost approaching it as, a, as, a, as an academic study. So we've written out a, a research proposal we are currently today, part of what I'm discussing today with my colleagues is the research tools. We are going to conduct focus groups and as well as key informant interviews. But what, what's happened is we have done a pilot focus group with made up of influencers and sort of people in leadership from amongst these communities. It was seven or eight people with one or two from each of the communities. We serve about four different communities. And so what was interesting there, which makes us excited about this research, was we, what we didn't even intend to, what we didn't think about discovering are some of the things that are now the subject of our study. So we were thinking that what might work for the community is maybe just have a community meeting and agreements amongst themselves that, you know, if, if, if there's violence, we won't participate. But we didn't really know, we didn't have any concrete suggestions ourselves. And out of this focus group already, they, they spoke about how they know the perpetrators, the perpetrators or the, the instigators of, 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 of violence and destruction in the communities are known. And in fact, in the one community, which was not as badly affected as our immediate community, they went to these instigators as, as parents then and just said to these guys, you are not taking our kids on this merry-go-round. You are not leading our kids down this road. Otherwise, you'll have it with us. And so that's one, that's one way in which communities already uh, that we found just out of this pilot focus group in which communities can uh, prevent this type of destruction and, and that reclaim same, reclaim themselves in doing so and reclaim themselves yeah and the same focus group came up with the fact that they could use structures that are already existent in the community such as the community policing forums and other forums maybe the taxi associations and business forums to prevent uh, to to get first responders to instances of violence so already, even just from a pilot uh, phase, we can see some exciting possible solutions coming up. So we're, we're quite excited about it. I can hear you are excited about it, and I'm actually excited just just hearing it. You know that uh, this morning I got a message from Australia from Les, um, a prof Professor Erwig in, in Australia, talking about lessons from the farm. And I'm going to send it to you. I'm actually going to be using it probably on my program next week. But it's a, it's actually fantastic. You will love it. It's uh, it's getting uh, people to follow your advice. Um, I'll send it on to you. And thank you so much for that, Les. You will enjoy that. Now, 
You know, um, Sebo, there's always so much to talk about that you and I uh, can talk about. But Alatsu says, from caring comes courage. The sounds of it, what you're saying is that the community are taking responsibility and saying, we'll find courage. So they are caring about their youth. And they are saying, because last time you were so disappointed by seeing, like, uh, there were some of the women and the older women and the younger women involved with the children in the looting and how absolutely shocked I think we all were. But, um, but I think what's happening, what you're saying is that the community are saying we care enough about our children to have the courage to step forward and say, this is enough. Right. And uh, and that's significant because what's happened largely in South African society and especially within uh, black society is what Peter Block, who writes on the structure of belonging, refers to as an outsourcing of agency, an outsourcing of the ability to do for oneself to government. And this is encouraged by government because it works for government. To, uh, sure. It builds dependency and makes people fit, and makes people in government feel really important, and makes people encourages people to think that they are powerless unless gov- government does something for them. So when people suddenly realize that uh, you know what we can do something, we can take on this ourselves, we do not need, or even if we do need to some extent external uh, intervention and external help, but we've got enough to start doing something. That's what's important. And, that, and, and that's what's exciting about this because you, you mentioned caring. They suddenly have, it's dawned on them that we care enough about our children. We care enough about our communities. We care enough about our safety that we are going to stand up and speak and do stuff that ensures that we, 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 are, we are protected, that ensures that our, our children are safe, that ensures that these rubber rousers within the community don't get, um, don't hold sway and do as they please. So That's very much so. Wonderful. That is planting that seed for the future, isn't it? It, uh, uh, you know what Picasso said, others have seen what is and asked why. I have seen what could be and asked why not. Wow. So, I mean, I think those words are so wise. You know, they're saying, why not? Why can't we do something? Which is absolutely amazing. Sebor, so you, this, this particular project of yours is, is actually taking off and it's going to be bigger than you thought. So you're going to have to get a lot of other advice on how to go forward. So if anyone's listening in and can help them, I'm sure you'd be wanting to hear from businessmen, from anthropologists, from whoever it might be who can help you. Definitely. Yeah. And we've realized that and we've started seeking help. For example, I was telling you now that we are, utilizing a template that we received from an academic for an honors project, you know, oh. for an honors research project. That's what we are using for our research proposal now. I had a meeting yesterday 
with a, with an academic, and uh, we were talking about res- uh, sampling procedures and purposive sampling and and, and, all, and all those kinds of things. So we we can see that we've seen that we have in our hands something that stands to be of way more value than what we first anticipated. So we, we we welcome assistance. The one thing that's actually important for so we are going to forego uh, the literature review that ah you know it's not really a serious study. But this academic I was, I was meeting with yesterday emphasized the importance of a literature review because it also helps guide the research tools. So that for me is kind of the one area that. Uh, I think we would appreciate assistance. So where, where can we read about community violence and where can we read about this type of um, rebuilding from kind of self-inflicted uh, destruction or it, yeah, this kind of destruction that, uh, and disturbance that communities go through? In, in other parts of the world as well as in our Absolutely. own. Absolutely. So anyone listening in, please contact us. If you'd like to actually uh, ask questions or of, of Sebo, please SMS us on 34519 or you can telegram us on 061-895-1019. You know, Sebo, what is coming through to me also is how important it is to listen and even if what we hear makes us feel uncomfortable often and I do think in our society especially which which can be a very divisive society um, it's part of our history that's come through unfortunately but we often don't listen to what we don't want to hear so we block the voices that are actually really needing to be heard that's true, Sue. I listened to a um, talk show once. This was just after Donald Trump had come to power, beating Hillary Clinton to to the post. And this discussion was about the fact that that le- they left in the U.S. Um, at large. And this is in, in, in general now. Had paid the price of not wanting to listen to the right or of not giving the right the opportunity to voice their concerns because everybody was caught up in this uh, in this euphoria of progressive thinking and uh, left-leaning notions and anybody that espoused anything sort of of the kind of things that you know, that uh, Trump was talking about like look, looking inward and uh, you know fear and even hatred of foreigners. Everybody was just squashed. And what happened was people kept quiet in the public spaces and they spoke at the vote. Mm. So it, it's very important, I think. And it enriches conversation to welcome and uh, to encourage and invite, in fact, dissenting voices. Because th- from there, the, the final result can be, can be richer. And I think we often make the mistake of wanting to cut it out. We certainly do. This is Sue Jackson on High FM. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. 
Hello, this is Sue Jackson, and I'm back with my guest, Sebo Villacazi, and we are talking about the seeds we plant. The reason why I put that short YouTube in was to show empathy, because I think part of the issue in South Africa is that we do not actually, we do keep mum about the different effects. We We don't want to ask one another. What's really happening? You know, how was your past? How was, how are you today? And I think that is empathy and it's so important. What I wanted to ask you, uh, Sebo, first of all, was you sent me the most beautiful story about your sister and it was called the walk of life. And, um, your sister, I want you to tell us a bit about her. But first of all, what did you think about that YouTube? I completely agree with it. I can I can relate to what what to what it says because it does become difficult to process sometimes grief when you are when you when you are not able to to verbalize it when you're not able to express it to somebody. So it's important if somebody is going to be more uh, direct about inquiring. You, you, um, you know about your about your well-being. It makes me realize also this is something you and I had discussed it earlier on the very first time we spoke when we spoke about my book because I lost my father at 12 years old, and it took me maybe the next 10 years to realize just how broken I was by that loss, mm-hmm. and I had never had the opportunity to to discuss it. There was no counseling at the time. You know, I didn't receive any, 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 any counseling of, of, of any sort. So it, it, it took for me to start to put down these emotions in writing to realize that, you know what, I'm actually still missing my father. And so I also wrote something recently. So I can't remember whether I sent it to you. It's a poem on the, on the, on the, uh, it's Zulu greeting, Saubona Unjani. Yeah, Tell me about that. I love that. I can't, uh, just, just recall it for me. Well, let me, let me, let me read a part of it to you quickly. I'll go through it quickly because I, I, I know we're rushing for time. But it goes like this. Saubona, Unjani, I see you. How are you? Yes, you. Only you. I see you alone and want to know about just you. How are you really? Not the well-practiced, politically correct, socially educated, I'm fine, thank you, you. I know that one. I meet her every day. Today I want to know about you, the real you, the one I'm connecting with now, the heart communing with my heart, the soul fused with my soul, the spirit vibrating in tune with my spirit, the essence behind the flesh and the blood that is this moment bonded to my essence. What do you feel right now? What do you... Uh, what do you feel right now? How do you feel right now? What would you like to feel right now? What could my contribution be right now? And so it goes. But it's it's really uh, about what the what Sandy what is her name again? Uh, uh, um, Sandra. Um, uh, Sandberg. Oh, yes. Sarah Sandberg. What what she expresses that you you, you it, it in. Reality, in Isizulu, when we say, in the Nguni languages, when we say, Saubona Unjani, we're saying, I see you. How are you now? As I see you. 
I'm not asking you to tell me in general about anything, you know, about, about the world around you, but I'm asking about your world, about you, and about how you are doing. Isn't that beautiful, Sabona Indiana? I mean, I love that. I see you. Um, that's, that's beautiful, really beautiful. I'm hoping we actually have a bit of time to talk about, um, because this is part of life as well that, uh, you and I, you shared this with me. And I said perhaps this would be a wonderful time to actually also talk about loss. But I see that our time is going. But I want you just to tell me about your late sister. She, she was the last born of six siblings. And she definitely had a huge impact on your life. Just, uh, and at the end of our program, we've actually got the song that you mentioned that she loved to dance uh, to, A Walk of Life. So tell me about your, what, what were the lessons you learned from your sister's life? My sister was beautiful. She, she was, she was wonderful. I come from, uh, so I've got these five sisters. Well, I had these five sisters. She's gone now, so I've got four. And they allow these, uh, these girls. <laughs> <laughs> so when, when we get together in my mother's house, we stay up until three, three in the morning and it's just laughter and, uh, mer- yeah, merriment. And my sister would be the one sitting quietly, you know, she'd be very much a part of it, but always very, definitely the more quiet of the, of the entire bunch. And her and I seem to share bond that I know I didn't share with any of my, of, of my other sisters. And in fact, I find this with my sisters actually that each one, there's something special that I share with individually than the, than the others. So her and I, had this bond and she could sense, I feel, she, she could more easily maybe, and maybe it's because uh, there was just opportunity for me to share with her more, but I used to write copiously, uh, to journal copiously uh, until recently, you know, but just coming out of my youth into, as I put into my adulthood, and I would share with her some of these things. She attended Helderberg We would mainly be talking over 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 email uh, and from time to time on uh, over the phone. But you know, she would read some of the stuff that I had written, and she would just ask me. She wouldn't really express an opinion. She would just give me the op- the opportunity to just voice it and put it out there. And she would just listen and then she might make one or two comments about it and suddenly to me the thing that had been bothering me uh, made sense or the weight that had been uh, heavy on my shoulders went. So she had a very therapeutic uh, impact on me. And, 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 and her and I shared, shared this friendship where there were certain jokes that if I heard it, I knew no one else would, or if I saw it, I knew no one else would understand it. So I'd quickly, you know, look for her. Or if, 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 if she was away from me, call her on the phone and tell her what just happened and we'd laugh. And we knew that no one else in the world really would understand what we, what, what we meant, but the two of us. So she was, she was really that special. And it was, uh, it was really sad that she was the first to leave us. She's still the only one. That's passed away up to this point, and it's just such a sad state of affairs. This is Sue Jackson on High FM. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson. 
only on 101.9 High FM. I'm back with Sebo Vilakazi, and our time is running out, and I so wanted to discuss your sister. But perhaps what we will we will discuss, loss, you and I, but uh, in a future program. But right now, I would actually, because of running out of time, I just want to say that Sebo's uh, sister passed away in 2012 at the age of 32 years of age. And he says while she was never, not an oldie, she was definitely golden. And that her uh, his sister loved the walk of life, the song Walk of Life. And when she was five years old, she began, it was released by the Dire Straits. And it quickly became a fern favorite of hers and of his. And whenever it came on the radio, they both sing along to it at the top of their voices. And he says the song refers to golden old oldies music hits from the 1940s and 1950s. Um, but uh, so I have got it at the end of our program. But I'm being told already to wrap up. I just wanted to say to you that our programs go so quickly, Sebo. But I think, you know, the person you are is because of the experiences you have had in your own life. The fact that you lost your dad when you're 12 years old is such a vulnerable age to lose a father. Through that, you probably have to search very hard and especially being brought up in a, in a house full of women to find your own identity, who you wanted to be and what you wanted to be as a father as well. And then to have lost your sister and reading this beautiful uh, story that you wrote about her, we will definitely get back and talk about that. How would you like to to end today's program? Thank you, Sue. I think that brief what what, what stood out for me about today's program is probably that um, the, the clip that we listened to about handling uh, handling grief, grief and helping people who are going through grief and the fact that it is it's really about being sensitive to the fact that it is such a difficult thing many times and it's such a personal thing many times that it's it's difficult to express but can stay with one can stay a festering soul if not if not attended to so it is very important and uh, that's this is what I strive to do to the best extent I can to be sensitive to the suffering of others and to look to be a place of solace or a place of comfort, uh, if only just by listening, because very often people don't need you to give them anything, don't need you to do anything other than perhaps just give them that your time and attention. And so that's what I would say, that it is it would be lovely if we all were conscious of this and made a conscious effort to uh, be more con- uh, to be more present for people that need us in times of loss, in times of grief, in times when they are suffering. Thank you, Sue, for having had me on your program. I always enjoy the experience. And Thank I wish you, Sebo. Sabona, Indiana. And is that right? Have I pronounced it correctly? Sabona. Unjani. Yes, Unjani. <laughs> I see you and thank you so much for being with me.